You're listening to the Case Law Show podcast. It's uh, Terry Doherty here, and on today's episode, we have Kevin Cook, and this episode is presented, as usual, by Templeman LLP and Diane Russell LLP. On today's episode, we're talking about the Nemshin decision again. It's a uh, second part to this discussion I've had with Kevin Cook. It's a really interesting uh, decision. I think you guys will enjoy it, so sit back, relax, and enjoy this podcast. If you have any questions, you guys know where to reach me, and if you would like to reach out to Kieran, please do so at Kieran at Doherty664.com. So, uh, Kevin, first of all, thank you for coming on uh, the podcast this evening. Thanks very much, Terry. It's uh, it's very uh, good to be back on the podcast. And I know that uh, the presentation that I gave back in November was converted into the, the first part of this podcast. So I'm looking forward to giving you some updated information on, on what my talk was all about back in November 2019. Well, um, Kevin, for all those people that may not have heard it or are just kind of need a bit of a refresher, if you could maybe just kind of take us through some of the highlights from part one, and then we'll uh, settle right in and we'll talk about part two. Sure. So back in November 2019, I gave a uh, presentation to some local insurance adjusters and people involved in the insurance industry in Kingston, Ontario, where I practice about a recent Court of Appeal decision. It's not so recent now. I'm, I'm speaking to you in March 2020, uh, but it was recent when I gave the uh, presentation. Uh, there was a decision released by the Ontario Court of Appeal on July 31st, 2019. What that decision was, was it was an appeal. It was the, the result of an appeal of a jury trial decision. So what the effect of that decision was, and the decision was called Nemchin versus Green. For any of your listeners who know how to look up uh, legal case law, legal citation 2019-ONCA-634, if you just type that in, you'll actually be able to, if you type that into Google, you'll be able to read the whole decision in its entirety. So what that decision uh, effectively did by the Ontario Court of Appeal was provide guidance on the use of surveillance evidence and social media evidence at trial. So when you did this presentation, um, it was talking about open source investigations and how surveillance could be used and how that kind of uh, those effects uh, were in the dealing with uh, actual litigation, correct? Yeah, in broad strokes, I think that is a, a fair way to describe it, yes. Okay. So where are we today, five months later, or, you know, actually July, so almost half a year later um, with regards to how things have changed in the landscape after the Nemchin. Well, I think what, what Nemchin did was really just provided a little more clarity on how we should be approaching the use of surveillance evidence and social media evidence uh, at the trial level of a, of a, of a claim. So using... An example of what happened in the trial of the of the Nemshin decision uh, that was subsequently appealed, the trial judge opted to exclude all of the surveillance evidence. So what the basis for the appeal uh, at the Ontario Court of Appeal was, was that the defense lawyer said the uh, trial decision should be set aside on account of the error that was made by the trial judge in excluding that, that surveillance evidence. There was also some social media evidence that was excluded as well that related to the plaintiff's Facebook posts 
and that was excluded as well. So there's some commentary that was delivered by the Ontario Court of Appeal in this July 2019 decision that dealt with social media evidence and how that should be used to trial as well. So it, let's talk about the appeal. You know, I mean, we've got the result now, and uh, are, are is that being appealed, or are we strong on this appeal? Where things where, where's the landscape now? Sorry, I should I should clarify. I don't believe it's being uh, appealed to the, to the Supreme Court of Canada. I don't have any information that would suggest it is. Okay. Uh, I, I, so yeah. So from what I understand, the, the the clarity that's provided by the Ontario Court of Appeal with respect to how surveillance evidence should be used at trial is the the most recent, most updated law in Ontario at present. So do you want to give everybody the highlights on that? Where where we're at with that? Absolutely. So. Uh, what the what the court of appeal was looking at was how surveillance evidence should be considered in the context of uh, of a trial. So the the prevailing uh, law in Ontario that relates to surveillance evidence is a case called Ionarella versus Corbett. It's a 2015 court of appeal decision. And what Nemshin re- reinforced was that that is, the good, that is still good law. Okay. What, yeah, so what the Ionarella decision says is that prior to admitting video evidence, the video evidence should be assessed by the trial judge in a voir dire. So just so your listeners know, what a voir dire is essentially is a trial within a trial. You're making a, uh, submissions to the judge about a particular um, aspect of the, of, of the trial. So the judge is setting the trial aside for all intents and purposes and dealing with this one issue. So what the judge would be looking at in, in dealing with the admissibility of a, of a uh, particular aspect of, uh, of a video, a surveillance video, is two, is twofold. It's a two-part two, two test, essentially, what the, what the judge will be looking at. Uh, the first is to permit the videographer, the person who took the video, the surveillance video, to be examined in order to ensure that the video presents a fair and accurate depiction of the surveillance to be admitted into evidence. So what that means is the videographer uh, would be the, 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 the representative of the, uh, of, the, of the investigation company would be put on the stand and asked to speak to the, to the, uh, to the truth of the, of, of the video that was being presented. The second thing to be assessed in that uh, voir dire is to ensure that the use of the surveillance video will not impair trial fairness. So um, what they're looking at there is uh, the extent of which, uh, the extent of the amount of the video that should be, that should be presented. So are there any aspects of the video that might impede the, the fairness of the trial to either side, to the plaintiff or to, to the defense? Well, so... Largely, I, oh, go ahead. I was going to say, Kev, I'll, and I'll let you finish, and then I have a question about that. So, sorry, I didn't mean to interrupt. I just, it came to my head, and I was like, oh, I got to get this out, but I'll wait. So, I apologize. Finish, Kevin. Sorry. No, no, no problem. So, uh, what, what the court really wanted to emphasize and mention was that video evidence is compelling, and court, especially in the context of, of jury trials, right, where you're presenting a video, an image, a moving image of, of, of the plaintiff, presumably. Uh, and it's compelling and impactful on the jury. So the courts have to recognize the importance of this video evidence. And what they're looking at during the course of the voir dire is 
what the evidence is going to be used for, whether it's impeachment purposes and purposes to to impeach the the, the credibility of the plaintiff to say, uh, essentially, you said you can you can't do this, but here is a video of you doing exactly what you said you can't do. And then there's substantive purposes to use it just to, to show, give a baseline level of, of, of function of what the, the, the plaintiff is able to do. So regardless of the purposes of what the board here is for, uh, the, the trial judge has to be looking at the broad strokes of these things during the course of the board here. Okay. Now, that being said, I, I, like I said, I have a couple of questions. Now, does the judge look at the video in its totality, or are they looking for, you know, just the uh, – do they only present the pieces that they want to present at trial? Well, you've, you've teed me up. Uh, you, you, you've set me up for the spike here, Terry. I appreciate that. Because what Nemshin is, is actually uh, emphasized for, for uh, trial judges but also for, for counsel who are presenting this, this surveillance video at trial is that the granular approach is supposed to be taken. Now, this is my – not my use of, of a word. It's, it's, it's the, the word that's used in the, in the decision. But each part of the video should be its own grain so to speak. So what the court is saying is you need to be advancing a particular aspect of the video and each piece of video evidence should be determined whether or not it's admissible. So what happened was uh, in Nemchin, the trial was that the, there was a blanket attack on the entire surveillance. Whereas if the defense had put in specific aspects like uh, for instance, if the plaintiff made some sort of comments about whether or not they could bend down and then there's a, video in the surveillance of the plaintiff bending down, that would be the very specific aspect that you'd want to present to the judge as being admissible at trial, as opposed to blanket submitting everything. Well, so what? Yeah, go ahead. No, no. I, and, and again, just, and this is why I'm asking this question is because, you know, if they've got him bending down in, you know, the first 30 seconds of the video, and that's what they show to the jury, but they don't show the two minutes preceding that of him laying on the ground in agony. I mean, then are we really, that's why I'm saying about the totality of the video. I mean, um, does the whole video have to be disclosed to the other side, but then you're just allowed to show the pieces that you want? I mean, or how, how does that work? Well, the, the entire video should be disclosed, right? I mean, the, for, the for the purposes of the trial, if, you, if you're relying on surveillance evidence, presumably the entire report and the entire content of the video are being disclosed to, to the other side uh, as required by the rules. But with that said, I think that's something that the judge needs to, needs to contemplate, right, uh, in a granular approach to the, to the trial. Is it in the best interest of trial fairness to have a video of that plaintiff bending down uh, and excluding the, I would, I would suggest even as a defense lawyer, very persuasive uh, video images of the person rising in pain for two minutes afterwards. Of course, that, that's not in the, 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 the heart of, of, of trial fairness to, to exclude one, but it would allow another. So I think that's, I think that's what uh, the heart of the Nemption decision is, is really getting at is the, the, the court needs to be looking at in these, Years, the trial within the trial, they need to be looking at each aspect of the video and what they'll permit the jury to be able to see. Yeah, so if the defense is going to permit him bending down, the plaintiff should be allowed to show him, you know, in their, 
you know, cross back, um, basically him laying on the ground as a result. And exactly. Yeah. But exactly. So not taking so if, just if there's a situation. I was gonna say if there's a situation where someone says they have trouble lifting uh, lifting their their head above their their, uh, their their sorry their hand above their shoulder, uh, and then you have a surveillance video of them painting their house and moving up and down and, and painting their house, and there's no subsequent video of of them rising around in pain, and they just put their ladder away and, and go about their day. Uh, I think the totality needs to be presented, but I think for for all intents and purposes, what the what the judge needs to consider is how much of that. Uh, surveillance video needs to be presented to the plaintiff to make the point across, to get the point across. And did the court speak to that, how much needs to be seen to be fair? Are they looking at a time period or an amount of time? Did they say, you know, showing two minutes of a video seems fair or showing four minutes? Or is it basically uh, depending on whether it's going to be used in chief or in uh, in cross? Did Did they speak to that at all? Well, lar- largely it's going to be a case-by-case basis, and I think that's really what the Court of Appeal was getting at, was that they really wanted to emphasize that a judge needs to be very practical about what they're admitting and what they're excluding, and why they're admitting it and why they're excluding it. So it's not it's not a situation where I can sit here and say there's a certain time frame that they should be allowing, that there's a certain uh, amount of evidence that they should be accepting or not accepting, what they, they need to look at is the, the surveillance in totality, what's being asked to be admitted as evidence, what's being objected to, and the reasons for both. And then they need to make that decision. And that would all be subject to the evidence that's given in the voir dire. Now, are they subjecting all surveillance to voir dires moving forward? Is that is that something we can expect to see from trials moving forward? on uh, a lot of these tort and AB cases? Ultimately, what I end up concluding in my presentation that I gave back in November is that I, rec- I indicate to defense counsel that they should be selective uh, going forward and what they want to seek to be admitted as evidence at trial with respect to surveillance video because uh, trying to submit an entire video might not necessarily be the most effective way of, of using the evidence that you have. And it might subject your, your client to paying for uh, an excessively long uh, voir dire uh, procedure to be, to be taking place. Uh, it could be several days where you're looking at uh, several minutes or several hours in some cases of, of, of video evidence. Whereas ultimately what I think mentions trying to, to nudge lawyers in the, in the direction of doing is, selecting the aspects of the surveillance video that you find most persuasive, producing them, and uh, letting the court consider those as opposed to trying to uh, submit blanket surveillance video, which could go on for many minutes, many hours, as uh, just uh, an opportunity to to put the the, uh, the video out into the to the to the the part of the trial that that the jury is going to be able to see and and allow it to be considered that way. So uh, taking it grain by grain, taking the granular approach is how the the court is recommended to to consider surveillance video, and that's really how they uh, it should be considered by the lawyers who are uh, trying to put it forward and the lawyers who are trying to object to it. Well, I'll I, I'll give you my thought in a minute on it, but what's your thought on that approach? What do you think? 
it's interesting. I see the merits in trying to be more selective about what you want to put in front of a jury. I think anytime you put more surveillance in front of them, they might see, you never know what a jury is going to see. They see it's, it's six, it's six people who see six, uh, who see things in, in different ways. And you never know what they might see when they see a video. But if you can be more selective about what you actually want to put in front of them, I might, I'll go back to the example I use. The plaintiff says he can't lift his arm above his shoulder. There he is lifting his arm above his shoulder. It doesn't seem to be in any pain. He's, he's painting his house. Everything seems fine based on what we're seeing. And Kevin- that, is much far more, that is far more effective to me than watching a video of, a, of someone who goes into their garage to, to collect their ladder. A jury might see something, some sort of movement that might impact them, that might persuade them, right? So I think from the defense side, you want to be able to show uh, the action that they say they can't eat, they can't perform, and uh, a video that sort of attacks their ability to, uh, to their credibility in terms of what they're able to do and what they are. And I would agree with you on that aspect completely. And, and, and uh, you know, I think more is less sometimes um, when it comes to video and maybe just showing, you know, two minutes of today, him painting, two minutes of the next day of him painting, two minutes of the next day of him painting, and basically showing him doing those repeated functions that he said he can't do as opposed to watching four hours or 30 minutes of him painting on one day, but then wondering, hey, did he do anything the next day? You know, there's always that thoughts, right? People, if you don't see it, you don't know. But I think, you know, on the aspect of maybe showing repeated functions over multiple days, um, then, you know, I think that more is less approach. Does that, you know, is that kind of where we're going? It, it seems that way. And I mean, everything is sort of subject to what your trial strategy is and what the evidence you're dealing with is, right? So, I mean, you have to consider that in your, your narrative and what you're trying to advance and what you're trying to achieve with, with putting the surveillance evidence in. For sure. If it's just simply, I've never been able to do this since my, since my car accident, then uh, you might not need to show the repeated, the repeated steps, right? But there's always going to be the, the patent plays out of the, the plaintiff counsel playbook about, you know, uh, even though you don't have the surveillance video of him the next day, he was lying on his couch for the next week because he was so tired of the uh, of, of the painting project that he was engaging in uh, that you just happened to catch in surveillance, right? I mean, there's there's certain ways that that plaintiff's counsel can attack them as well. For sure. So we we yeah we need to be cognizant of that, but I think being selective and and putting in, what's the ultimate goal of, of surveillance, right? It's, it's putting something that you think is compelling video video images of the plaintiff doing something that they say they can't do to the jury it loses its effect if you if you watch them go about uh their day by day uh the mundane aspects of a day by day yeah bringing garbage down to the end of the driveway or whatever stuff that you know even in even in your worst days you could do right Exactly. So. And you might you might have that one jury member who says, Well, why do I feel so bad for this guy who's just trying his best to take his garbage out? Right? You got it. As opposed to him actually doing stuff, changing tires, brakes, those kind of things that, you know, uh, you always hear about in surveillance videos, you know, changing shingles on exactly. his roof or cleaning out his eaves troughs. Stuff that, you know, a typical person wouldn't do on their best days. Exactly. Okay. 
So that was uh, that was one aspect of the uh, of the Nemshin decision, and then the other the other underlying aspect of the decision that really came out is the the importance, the emphasis on uh, uh, admitting surveillance evidence, but looking at it on a continuum. So, uh, and you heard this in the previous podcast, but I'll just explain it again. Uh, it's easier to explain when you're able to to show it. Uh, visually but what the court is supposed to consider is a continuum and it's a you need to be looking at what a flat-out discrepancy between what the plaintiff is saying is that's on one end of the continuum and then on the other end of the continuum is is, uh, the difference between what the plaintiff has said and his actual functionality so when I say that I mean uh, on one end of the continuum you have the plaintiff saying I can't lift my hand above my shoulder and uh, this is me lifting my hand above my shoulder. Whereas on the opposite end of the continuum, you have the plaintiff who at discovery says, um, I sometimes have trouble lifting my hand above my shoulder, but uh, it's, it's uh, tough for me, and then I have good days and bad days. So the court needs to be consider- considering what the plaintiff has said and what exactly the defense lawyer is trying to achieve in admitting the surveillance. So they're looking at that continuum a flat-out discrepancy, and then just sort of the the good day, bad day kind of uh, evidence that's trying to be uh, attacked by the defense lawyer. And that needs to be considered as well, right, when there are many evidence. Is is there a reason to admit the the surveillance evidence when the plaintiff concedes, yeah, some days I'm able to lift my hand above my shoulder. Well, what kind of impact is that going to have on the jury when he's already conceded that? So those are some things that that the trial judge is going to have to consider in the voir dire when they ultimately uh, look at whether or not uh, the uh, the evidence, the surveillance evidence, should be admitted. Where on that continuum, where on that spectrum, does does what the plaintiffs say uh, they can do land versus what the surveillance shows? So are we? And maybe this question is it isn't valid or it is i'm i'm, I'm going to throw it out there are we only going to see voir dires where plaintiff counsel has objected to the use of surveillance or is it just going to be a standard on all good question uh, again i would i would imagine it's fact driven it's, it's totally driven by what the circumstances of the trial are i can't imagine any situation where a plaintiff lawyer uh wouldn't uh be interested in at least raising an objection to the admissibility of, of surveillance evidence in some way, shape, or form. And that might be something you want would want to ask your good friend uh, John Russell about. Uh, I know he works on the plaintiff side, and, and he might be able to shed some light on that. But I can't foresee a situation where um, a voir dire wouldn't take place uh, with respect to the admissibility of surveillance evidence. You know what? I think we will have him on, and we will discuss this one further as well. I mean, I think this I is... I imagine a, he'll agree with you. I think that's a great discussion for you and John to have, kind of to kind of talk about, uh, because, you know, if you talk about the plaintiff saying, you know, I can do this sometimes and not others, then really what's the argument from the plaintiff side saying, hey, you know, let this in and we'll take it for what it is. We've already told you we can do this sometimes, right? Or are they worried that it's going to taint the jury? I mean, that's, I guess, that's the question, right? Yeah, and I think that it would be interesting. And I would frankly be very interested to hear John's perspective on that because uh, there's there's a certain there's a certain aspect to it of why would I object? My plaintiff, my 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 client has already said 
that they can do that on some good days. And then what you what your investigator didn't see was them lying on the couch for the next two days, right? That would be the approach that you could take, and it's an easy submission to make to the jury in your closing remarks. So I'd be interested to see what John says. Okay, well, let's put a pin in that one and, you know, on that part, and we'll get John on, and I think we can actually do a part three to this. I, I, I think that it would be really interesting to have uh, both sides on. We'll, uh, we'll get this podcast out. We'll uh, make sure John has a listen to it, and then uh, well, let's get the plaintiff perspective in and uh, get you back on and uh, kind of put it together and see what their perspective is. Because, like I said, John being on the plaintiff side, uh, he's dealing with this from, you know, just uh, sitting at the other side of the table. The Nemchin decision is the, is the decision that keeps on giving in terms of podcast content. It's yeah, great. it is great. All right, well, you know, is there anything else we need to know about Nemchin now, or is, uh, or is it basically we're living by it and uh, with the court of appeal decision and just going from there? Uh, from my review of the law, that is that is the uh, the, the primary area of of of, the, the, of law in, in Ontario that, that deals with with uh, with surveillance evidence and the admissibility of that that evidence. There is some commentary on social media uh, this social media evidence at trial that's that's released in the Nemption or that's discussed in the Nemption decision. Uh, I'll, I'll simply emphasize a few points because there's very specific fact examples of what happened at the trial as to why the social media evidence was eventually not admitted at trial as evidence. So the jury wasn't permitted to see it. So I won't get into the specific facts, specific situations as to what happened in that trial, but there's some broad strokes that the Court of Appeal mentions about the use of social media evidence at trial that I think should be instructive or could be instructive to some of your listeners. Mostly uh, what the what the Court of Appeal emphasizes is that timely disclosure of social media evidence is appropriate. In, in what regard? So, so you need to disclose the, the not only the existence, but that uh, you have the, the evidence, that you have the Facebook posts or the Instagram posts or you know, choose your your uh, your method of, of, of engaging in social media, sure. whatever it is. Yeah. And you have that and that you intend to, to use it uh, for a certain purpose. So uh, in the Nemption decision, just jumping in quickly into the weeds of that one, what happened was that there was a Facebook account that was deactivated. Uh, plaintiff's counsel granted permission to the defense lawyers to uh, access it for a certain period, but they never disclosed what, 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 the, what it was that they intended to use. So if you have social media posts, disclose them because if you intend to rely on them, uh, the court will be looking at when the, that disclosure happened uh, vis-a-vis when the trial happens so that you know, the plaintiff isn't caught by surprise. I think it was actually you, Terry, who attended my November uh, presentation who said, what would catch a plaintiff by surprise if they were the author of the post? Well, it was and me, and I was going to ask you that a question again. <laughs> yeah, it's, it's a good question. And uh, I agree with you, but nevertheless, the the court of appeal wanted to flag that as an issue of timely disclosure being an important thing to consider. So, uh, if the if the plaintiff made a ridiculous post five years ago, whether or not they remember it or not, 
incumbent on on the defense lawyer to disclose that they have it, that it exists, and that they have it, and that they intend to use it at trial. So basically, so disclose earlier, it. Yeah. Right. Disclose it in your brief that you're going to rely on it at trial. Yeah, in your in your Schedule A production usually, or uh, whether that's answers to undertakings, or in some way, shape, or form. Don't don't disclose it. I I don't know the exact timeline. I don't have it exactly. Uh, at my fingertips as I talk to you right now, but it was relatively, I think it might have even been during the trial that they disclosed that these social media posts exist and that, uh, and that they intended to use them. That's always problematic, right, if you're bringing up evidence at yeah. trial that wasn't yeah, disclosed exactly. in advance, right? I mean, then you're the author of your own don't, misfortune, right? I'll, I'll tell you this. Don't quote me on that because I don't want the, the defense lawyers to, to be sending me emails no, no. after I, they listen to this, this podcast. But I, I know it was not timely, and that was what the the, uh, the trial the trial judge took issue with. Yeah, absolutely. And again, I we're just speaking just in general terms at this point. I mean, if you're going to rely on something at trial, you, you know, you've got to follow the rules, right? Exactly. All right. Exactly. Well, so that was that would be the only other thing that I would emphasize from the Nenshin decision. But mostly just timely disclosure of both surveillance and social media. Those are. Those are our key key takeaways. Uh, the court should be taking a specific or granulated approach to surveillance admissibility. And um, if there's specific aspects of surveillance that should be introduced at trial, uh, it may be difficult to have evidence excluded in its entirety. So just focus on getting the evidence admitted to be narrow and, and on a specific aspect of a video or a photograph that's taken during surveillance. Those are the three kind of big takeaways of, of what the Nemesis decision is all about. Excellent. Well, thanks again, and thanks as always, Kevin. You're so insightful. I appreciate it, and you're great to work with and to talk to. Uh, love dealing with your firm, Templeman. Uh, you guys are, you know, just for everybody that knows, you're the biggest or one of the biggest uh, defense firms in eastern Ontario. you got offices in Belleville, Brockville, Kingston, and Picton, right? You're you kind of... Cover Not that. picking yet, but I think we're. I think picking we're trend. We might be trending that way. We also have a satellite office in Toronto. I, I go into Toronto quite a bit. Okay. In the context of my practice, but you know what's great? I'll tell this to your listeners. I don't have Toronto rates, so if any of your listeners want to contact me, I'm happy to have a discussion about that as well. And how do they reach you, Kevin? If they're going to reach you on uh, social media or uh, or website, where are they yeah, getting you? A, they're getting me at uh, K C O O K E at tmlegal.ca. It's just my first initial K and my last name, Cook, with an E, at tmlegal.ca. You can always be reached at 613-542-1889. And it doesn't have to be just for work. If you have a question, you want to chat, and and uh, and you have any issues that, that come up, I'm always happy to have a discussion. It's a uh, it's, it's great uh, industry to work in the insurance industry, and I'm always happy to talk about uh, interesting and uh, developing cases. Excellent. Well, thanks again. I appreciate your time. We're going to get back on. We're going to do Nemption Part 3. We're going to have John Russell join us, and uh, we'll have some more interesting conversations about it, I'm sure. And I'm sure what develops in the, the, the Nemption Part 3 will develop in the Nemption Part 4, because like I said, it's just a gift that keeps on giving. Lots of discussion points. Excellent. Well, thanks again, and have a wonderful evening.
Thanks so much, guys, for listening to this podcast. We'll be back next week uh, with more content for you. I hope you enjoyed the podcast as much as I did. If you have any suggestions or any questions, please reach out to us. You can reach Kieran at Doherty664.com. Thanks again.